failures are good. You learn from them. Now, how resilient you are, how you come back from the failure is going to define you as a person. So don't get discouraged if there are failures in your life. Learn from it and make sure that the same mistake doesn't happen next time around. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in-the-weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Hey, leaders. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Noah Tetzner, and today I'm joined by Raj Sakar. He's the chief marketing officer at 1Password, a company that probably needs no introduction to the listeners of our podcast. 1Password is trusted by more than 100,000 businesses who use it to protect their data, giving them complete control over passwords and other sensitive business information. Raj, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Noah, for the invitation. By the way, let me start with a compliment. You have a really good radio voice, by the way. Well, thank you. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, I really like your radio voice. Uh, I've done a lot of podcasts. I go to a lot of podcasts usually, but it feels like you're a pro right here. Well, I love doing it, and I, I'm so glad that we can have you on the on the show, too. Raj, thank you again for coming on the podcast. There's so much that we could explore today, and there's so much we will explore today. But, you know, perhaps a great place to begin is, again, 1Password doesn't need an introduction to our listeners. I understand you're the company's first CMO. Is that correct? Yes. So I could talk about, like, how I got introduced to 1Password and how I came across the company. So the way my introduction to one password happened is Axel was an investor at my previous company called Atlassian. And Atlassian kind of had a similar journey like one password, like Atlassian bootstrapped for many, many years before taking money from Axel. Axel was a first investor at Atlassian. And Axel invested similarly in 1Password in early 2000, which is right before the pandemic happened. And 1Password's journey has been incredible. They have bootstrapped the founders and China, the CEO, they bootstrapped the company for almost like 14 years before they took money from Axel. So Axel invested and Axel was like, 1Password needs some help from a marketing perspective. So they reached out to me saying, hey, Raj, can you come and talk to, you know, the Shiner and the 1Password team? And I remember meeting, you know, the Shiner and the founder for the first time, and I was just blown away by what the company had achieved with just in like a purely an engineering organization. So that's my short story of how I got introduced to 1Password. And what happened since my first conversation is I would get like invited uh, by Axel, like, hey, one password need help here. Can you come and help China on marketing? 
uh, and then what happened is they invited me to become like an advisor uh, for one password. So I formally became an advisor around June of 2020. So I was almost an advisor for a year before I took the CMO role. And two reasons which compelled me to join one password. The first is obviously the trajectory of the company in the last two years has been incredible. Um, like I said, when I met uh, Shiner, uh, Dave, and, and the team for the first time, they were like 150 employees, <laughs> right? Now we are like almost 600. So the, the growth trajectory has been phenomenal. We have raised almost a billion dollars now. We have valued in our last round at 6.7 billion. The entire functions were built out in the last one and a half years. So that trajectory is number one. And then number two, which is so it may sound cliche, no, because every, uh, every company talks about it, it's the people. And the reason why the people uh, on one password, first of all, Canadians in general are very nice people. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other reason is, you know, if you look at our founders, they are not the typical quote unquote Silicon Valley founders, right? They are like next door neighbors, right? Uh, and that has kind of seeped into the culture of the company. We have a group of incredibly smart people, but they're all very humble, approachable. Kindness is one of the values we have, you know, in in our company, which is incredible. And we strongly believe in it. Now, it has other problems, which I can talk about as well from a leadership perspective. Uh, but that's that's the reason why I made the plunge and decided to join one password. So the company had been bootstrapping for so long, and then it was evident that they needed some marketing help. And of course, that's where you came in. Uh, let's unpack that a little bit, if you wouldn't mind, Raj. You know, what were, when you first joined, uh, first as an advisor, then as the CMO, you know, what were, what kind of challenges were you tackling at that moment? Yeah. So advisory is, you're always looking at the company from outside, Right you don't know exactly what's going on. So once I joined the company, like officially as a CMO, you have to remember before I joined, there was not a formal marketing organization in place. So kind of in the last 12 months, I had to build the marketing organization from the ground up. A lot of functions didn't exist. Product marketing doesn't, didn't exist. Brand marketing, it was one possible with such a beloved brand but there was not a formal brand marketing team. So the first thing I did after coming on board is putting like an, like an op structure in place and then building out the marketing functions which weren't there, right? So that was the number one thing. Number two, one of my focus area was basically what I call, you know, kind of strengthening the foundation of, of the company, right? Like, for example, there were a lot of things which were not in place. The data infrastructure was not in place. You can't do marketing without having a solid data infrastructure, right? Uh, the web infrastructure, there are a lot of things we needed to do from a web infrastructure perspective, right? So there was a lot of foundational work. I formed an, like, an organization called Marketing Operations and Analytics, which didn't exist before I joined, right? So there were a lot of foundational work which happened in the last 12 months. The third piece is 
a very important piece, which is basically establishing a culture for the organization, especially from the marketing organization. And I have this, I call like call this the leadership, like two, two kinds of ethos I have. One is the leadership ethos and the other is the craft ethos. So I established like what are the leadership ethos of the organization? What are the craft ethos of the organization? Put a culture of you know empowerment and accountability. That was the third thing which I did. And then fourth is obviously results and driving. So in your role as CMO, you know, you were instrumental in establishing a great company culture. Most people, I think, would, you know, they don't typically think of of the marketing department as as instrumental in that capacity. Yeah, I'd love it if you could speak to that a little bit, Raj, and, and share your perspective. Yeah. So I'm one of those people who are really passionate about people because the way I see a company being successful, I mean, people talk about strategy, but I always, I think there is this quote, right? Like culture eats strategy for breakfast, <laughs> right? You may have the right strategy, but in the end, if you don't have the right people and culture to execute that strategy, you will not be successful as, as a company. So one of the things like I talked about the leadership ethos, and, and this is purely I'm talking from, from a marketing organization perspective. Now, one password has its own principles. Let's not forget, like I mentioned, like kindness is one of the principles. So it's much easier to build a culture within a company which already had a good culture, right? Uh, but I wanted to make sure that I have like clearly outlined like what my leadership philosophies are for the organization and what is my expectation from the leadership team. So the four uh, ethos I have in my organization, the first ethos is I call it servant leadership. And you probably have heard this term being used a lot. Servant leadership is the way to think about it. it. Instead of having the organization in a pyramid format, it's like an inverted pyramid, right? So your job as a leader is to serve the organization, right? And you have to always remember that you are very far removed from the customers because the people who are on the front lines, the ICs, they are the ones who are working very closely to the customer. And your job primarily is to, you know, empower, enable your, uh, you know, your organization to do their best work. So that's number. That's my number. The number one ethos I have in the organization. The second ethos I have is a call a concept called radical candor, and I'm sure you've heard about this term being used a lot. When I say, why is radical candor super important to me? Because I believe in you know honesty and transparency in my organization. I want to create a culture where people should be able to raise flags and point out problems in the organization. Right. I also want where the, the whole concept of radical candor comes like uh, it's a combination of caring deeply about people and challenging um, directly at the same time, right? Because if you don't care deeply, you just challenge directly, then you become like obnoxious, right? So that's the two second thing I, I, I always use the term radical candor. I want people to be open and transparent and should be able to talk about like, any issue which is happening in the organization. The third ethos I have, and this is more because of the pandemic, it's no more a work-life balance, it's a work-life harmony because work and life has become intertwined right now. And empathy has become more and more important in organizations. There are a lot of people who, like for example, have kids and during the pandemic had at home, so they have to manage their kids they're doing like two full-time jobs, for example, 
right? So empathy is as a as a leadership ethos, especially for me and my leadership team, is incredibly important. And the fourth is what I call equitable. And what it means is everyone should have an equal seat, uh, you know, equal seat in the organization. I don't want the person with the loudest voice or with the highest title winning argument. So those are my four leadership ethos I've established in my organization. Uh, and then I call, I have four other ethos, which I call the craft ethos. And the craft ethos is more around, around the marketing craft, right? So the first ethos I have, I call it that we should only ship stuff with a very high quality bar. Like you should be very proud of yourself of whatever work you're putting it out there. You should feel incredibly proud of what you your you know, of your work. So that's the first, you know, ethos I have. The second ethos, which kind of goes with hand in hand, like at the same time, you should be able to take risk and fail. Like if you're not failing, then you're not trying hard enough. <laughs> so that's kind of my, you know, second craft ethos. Uh, and uh, there are two more ethos. Oh, outcome over output. So that is the other one because I don't care about like how much work we are doing. <laughs> it's more about like how the, is the work is basically you know driving driving outcome for the organization or not. Well, for those unfamiliar, I'd love to just speak to this for a moment, Raj. Um, kind of give us a sense for for how your you know team is structured. Do you do you have a a headquarters in, in New York City? Uh, do you have a remote workforce? It's a hundred percent remote remote organization. So my team is primarily in three countries right now, uh, UK, US, and Canada. We, like majority of the people are in those three countries. And then in the US, it's, uh, there are a few people in the West Coast and there are a few people in the East Coast. Toronto is basically where the company is based out of. We had a small office in Toronto before the pandemic, but we don't have any office right now. Wow. Now, you know, how do you, and a very basic question, but I, I'd love to hear your insights. How do you go about employing the, you know, this ethos and promoting your vision for great company culture uh, across a widespread remote workforce? I mean, spread, you know, so, so wide. Yeah, it's, the, I think it's that, and this is what I tell my team, like, you have to repeat, repeat. The, you know the ethos every time so the people don't forget and i try to do that when i do marketing all hands i do informal chit chats and remind people like these are all the ethos i just, i keep repeating these words like some leadership right kind of so it basically gets stuck with people right and then the other thing is i like i keep reminding people that it shouldn't be usually with you know, corporate principles. It's like a thing which is there on the wall, but people don't follow. But I want everyone to basically feel empowered to follow those principles and then raise their hand if they see that someone in the organization is not following that principle, right? And it's our job to go and like, I told them that the culture is basically built not by me, it's by all of you. And you all need to be the guardians of the culture and basically correct each other if you see like someone is not following this culture. It's hard, to your point, to do it remotely. Like, it's incredibly hard. But 
like it's much easier when you're in an office you can go and like tap someone <laughs> you know on the shoulder and, and talk to people and now with this virtual world like how do you do that on slack right? so we're trying to we're like that then it becomes like a remote culture conversation like what are the you know what are the practices you have to enable those informal conversations and we do a bunch of stuff like we do informal chit chats uh, i try to do informal chit chats with the entire marketing organization we try to do activities together once in a while i do like informal chit chat with my leadership team once in a while usually what happens is in this you know post pandemic world zoom fatigue is an issue <laughs> and i'm sure no you're kind of you and every single person in the you know is dealing with it right no doubt and and i mean you know raj that, that zoom fatigue is a thing I guess, how do you go about combating that? Because it, it's so hard, you know, like one of the things I've loved about working remotely for, for years now is you get to meet so many people from all over the world with different cultural backgrounds that you would have never met, say, 20 years ago. But it, it kind of is difficult to build a relationship when you see someone uh, in the same room, in the same chair, you know, every single day, it's, you know, it's kind of more difficult to establish that that human connection. But, um, you know, the informal chit chats, things like that, I mean, those must really go a long way. Yeah, so I like I have one person in my team who does this really, really well. He's, his philosophy is whenever he goes into a one-on-one, he spends the first five minutes talk, not talking about work. And I've tried to adopt that in my one-on-ones as well. Like whenever I go into a conversation, like, hey, let's spend the first five minutes talking about what's going on in your life. Trying to mimic the water cooler conversation you have in office. And so the practice is like that. The Zoom fatigue, like there are a few, few I think, tech, you know, techniques you can use. Number one is reducing the size of the window. And there is science behind it saying like, the bigger the size, the you know, it, it, it basically uh, wears on you to some extent after after a long time. So I try to small my my video window, uh, you know, to like as po- small as possible. <laughs> Number two, because you always, so in a meeting room, for example, you can be like this. You don't stare at people, all the people in the room all the time. In Zoom, you're always looking at like all the people on your screen, which is, you think about it, it's, 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 it's a taxing on your brain. And number two is be more receptive to people not having their video on because once in a while, I think it's a good thing. Mm, I agree. I wholeheartedly agree with that. Well, Raj, this has been so valuable. You know, you've developed a lot of great action steps and, and, you know, ideals for listeners to embrace. I'm curious, you know, your passion about leadership, your knowledgeable about culture before one password are these things that you've developed across your career? Do you remember the first time when you realized, you know, how important culture and leadership is to an organization's bottom line? Yeah. The, so the companies I worked for obviously shaped my philosophies a little bit. Like Google, when I was at Google, this was, I joined Google in 2010. In Google's heydays, basically, uh, you know, it's, and I remember Google had a very strong culture, right? I, I remember Larry Page like doing all hands, getting on a call and saying, "Hey, if you're if you don't 
you know, uh, agree with your <laughs> manager, you should feel free to question your manager if your manager is asking you to do X. I mean, as one of the things I think, it kind of like not saying that's the right thing to do, but in the sense <laughs> that giving voice to people, uh, you know, uh, is, is a thing which, you know, Google did really, really well. Like, and Google had a very, like, high-performance culture as well. So there are a lot of things I learned from. I remember my first leader at Google, like the person who hired me, Google called Tom Oliveri. I walked in, like, I remember his, the first, my first one-on-one with him. And I felt walking out from this room like I was the most important person in this organization. And he made me feel, you know, feel that way. People talk about Bill Clinton like that, like Bill Clinton's leadership style used to be like that. Obama's leadership style used to be like that. So I like over the years, you know, I've learned a lot. <laughs> I mean, Atlassian also had like an amazing culture. I don't know how much you know about you know, how much Atlassian or you haven't spoken to anyone at Atlassian. Atlassian was a great company. Um, and we always, I think the people always had a vice. I don't know if you're familiar with this product called Confluence. If you're not, you're missing out. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of Confluence because I marketed Confluence at one point in time. And what Confluence does is basically, I think people inside the organization use Confluence as a vehicle to talk about openly about issues inside the organization. And we'll talk about like big, heavy issues. Public. Think about it like in a public forum, like, the, the the analog analog like analogy will be like you're standing in like in the middle of the office and screaming about like what's like what's the worst thing which is happening to you. <laughs> so they, I've always worked in companies where you know like Google paid a lot of importance to people. Like Atlassian was kind of very similar, and I've observed like talking to people and over the times like working with leaders who care a lot about the people in the organization like. I've figured it out because I've seen companies where, you know, in t- from a textbook perspective, they had the perfect strategy, but they didn't have the right people or the right culture to execute, right? So this is what, what you remember, like the consulting firms, right? Like at one point in time in post-business school, I was thinking about going to consulting, right? And co- what the consulting firms do, they come, give a presentation, strategy presentation, and then they go away. And then the actual execution is the hardest, right? Uh, because, uh, yeah. So to answer your question, it has my leadership philosophies have obviously, you know, evolved over over the years. And that's how I've learned by working for great companies. Yeah. Well, in in you know, obviously we, we certainly don't have to, to name names or point fingers, but no doubt along the way, you've also observed leadership styles and, and cultural things that you didn't want to bring into one path or into um, one password, you know, what do you see companies, even, even great companies uh, getting wrong about culture? Yeah. Like command and control, command and control used to work 20 years ago. It's not going to work right now <laughs> because things have changed so much nowadays so this whole concept of, hey, and even like I hear, like even from the perspective of raising children, this philosophy will not work right now as well. Like, hey, I'm your dad. I'm your parent. You should listen to me without, you know, giving the logic behind why you're asking someone to do something, right? 
the same thing in, in the workforce. Workplace is not going to, you know, you're not going to get great work by asking people to do stuff without, impo- like, without, like, don't give solutions to your team, give problems to your team and empower them to fix those problems, right? Uh, that's the difference between, you know, a command and control culture versus like a, like a servant leadership kind of culture. And I've seen that in other companies. Like, it's not like I've, I have talked to friends who work in companies like that, and that's why they're not successful. I strongly believe that's why they're not successful, because in the end, it's all about the people. And, you, you know, 1Password has grown so much, particularly over the last two years, indeed, during a time when, you know, there's this great resignation going on and these sociopolitical issues and so forth around hiring and retaining top talent. You know, how do you, like, relay the great culture of 1Password to new people that are preparing to sign on to the company? I think people... It's not the words you use in an interview. It's your behavior. To be honest, like I will tell you all these things, like four things. Oh, they, these are the four things we care about as an organization. But in the end, it all matters like what people are taking away from their interactions. Every single interview I do, I always tell them, hey, you don't have to listen to me. Like, go and talk to 10 different people in the organization and you will feel the culture of the organization. Like my my like my boss, China CEO, he's he like he is so he doesn't feel like a CEO if you talk to him. Like he is an like amazing person to work with. Like he basically can have a conversation with an IC who's writing code on you know on on iOS devices the same way like he's gonna talk to me. So you don't have to tell people, people will sense it when they're going through the interview process. And then obviously you can do back channel, like every single company that you will know what's going on in that company. Yeah, no doubt. Well, Raj, this has been great thus far. You know, we've talked about leadership. We've talked about culture during a time here in Q2 of 2022 when it's very relevant. And those two subjects are in everybody's mind. I'd also love before we close out today to tap into some of your marketing smarts uh, when it comes to sort of what's on your mind as you look, you know, out to the horizon of, of one password's future, you know, what are you thinking about when it comes to marketing one password and continuing to grow the company? I think we can go in various directions, right? The first and foremost like the top things which is comes like which I talk about a lot, like how are we different from other cybersecurity companies out there? And I use always use this example. If you look at all the other security companies out there, what are they talking about? They are talking about protecting the infrastructure, protecting your data, protecting your resources. That's the conversation they usually have. One password is talking about is the human. Because majority of the data breaches happen because of human errors. You might have the best security in the world, but if a human commits a mistake, it's basically, you know, doesn't matter like how, how many billions of dollars you have spent on security products, right? 
So our approach is very different. We build the pyramid around the human versus unlike other cybersecurity companies. The second thing I think the approach we are taking is, you know, we want security to be as approachable as possible, as convenient as possible. That's the reason we did the Randall's ad, right? We want to make it super simple for people to use security products. And that's our vision in the long run. And I always use this example. I want one password to be like toothbrush. Every single person in the world should be using it on a daily basis. <laughs> and it should be as easy as brushing your teeth, right? So I always use this example. Now, from uh, from a marketing craft perspective, right, there are two things I, I keep telling my team. Number one, I don't want to be another B2B SaaS, to be like another B2B SaaS company, right? Go to any other, like our website also needs a lot of change, but if you go put four, pick four B2B SaaS companies and put their website side by side, they all will kind of look the same. The same blue monotonous tone, you know, same style stick figures. I'm like, you need to create an identity which is very different from a lot of other B2B, you know, SaaS companies. Number two, enterprise marketing has gone through a lot of transformation. And the way I see enterprise marketing happening in the near future is not the same as it was happening 20 years ago. Enterprise marketing doesn't need to be boring. Enterprise marketing can be exciting, can be engaging. Right. So that's the direction we are taking with, you know, with our marketing craft as well. Yeah. Well, Raj Sakar, it's been a delight having you on the podcast. This has been absolutely incredible. We've been honored to have you. Before we depart today, what other final wisdom would you share with our audience, whether that's about marketing, leadership, people, or culture? What is one final word you would leave us with today? I keep telling you know, my team about this a lot. Failures are super important in your career. If you're not failing, you're not being successful. So a lot of leaders, they focus a lot. They talk about like how successful they have in their lives, but it's not as simple as that. We have all have dealt with failures. Failures are good. You learn from them. Now, how resilient you are, how you come back from the failure is going to define you as a person. So don't get discouraged if there are failures in your life. Learn from it and make sure that the same mistake doesn't happen next time around. So that's the most important thing, you know, take away for your audience from this podcast. I love it. I love it. Well, Raj Sakar, thank you so much again for coming on to Leaders of B2B. It's been a treat. Thank you, Noah. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.